She's the star of Sisterhood of the Traveling Gender Identity, Franny Choi. <laughs> and they're a platinum member of the Delta Sky Club of my heart, Vanessa Smith. I'm almost at platinum. And you are <laughs> listening to Verses, a podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Presented by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Hey, Dinez. Hey, Franny. Happy 2019. Happy 2019, and welcome to season three. Wow, welcome to season three, 2019. Oh, oh my God, we, we're not divorced yet. Not yet. Not even seeing another <laughs> podcast. Not, we haven't even went poly with this thing yet. I mean, I, sh- I guess we should have some, uh, some conversation. Are you recording with somebody else? <laughs> I just have needs. Wow, wow. So, you know, okay, so, like, right, we're in the new year. New year also always comes with, like, some, you know, what are those things called? Resolutions. <laughs> um, and I think resolutions often are about, the new year gives us permission, right, to mm-hmm. do something that we've been uncomfortable thinking about doing for so long, mm-hmm. right? That go into the uncomfortable to do what you have been meaning to do for so long. Yes, I'm wondering, yes. maybe less in the spirit of New Year's resolutions, because those are so easy to break. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, what comfort zones are you trying to get out of this year? Ooh, for Francis Choi the human, mm-hmm. being kind of comfortable with being like a little bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean that like very compassionately to myself, as mm-hmm. in like thinking that it's like cute to be late to things mm-hmm. or be like, ugh, like I can't answer that email. Like I just forgot, like I lost a stack of books or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, like I want to let go of the version of myself that's like, the messy, spacey mm-hmm. artist who, like, can't get shit right, mm-hmm. you know? I realize I'm not being fair to myself mm-hmm. in that, in, like, allowing that. Mm-hmm. Also, I should probably be on time to things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to move in narrative time as opposed to lyric time. <laughs> there you go, there you uh-huh. go, there you go. Just, l- yeah. l- just don't go the opposite and go into experimental time. Right, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah. for my writing, the comfort zone that maybe I'm trying to break out of, I think that whenever I feel boxed into a corner, mm-hmm. I sort of try to get myself out by having the subject of the poem leave her body, mm-hmm. in a way. The speaker a.k.a. me, becomes like a field of grass Mm -hmm. or like a riverbed Mm -hmm. or or like a squid or whatever, you know, like Mm -hmm. whenever I feel uncomfortable. And like, first of all, wonder what that's about. Second of all, I'm trying to leave the old tricks in 2018. Wow. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. So what about you? Okay. So Nezzy the human Mm -hmm. is trying to stop talking about not living up to their potential Mm -hmm. and actually live up to it. Uh Um, You know, like approaching 30, I'm killing the game. Yeah. You know, um, got these, you know, niggas from high school jealous. They wish. (laughs) But, you know, I just, I feel, I I, I know the capacity that I have to do things, right? I know how much time I waste and Mm -hmm. I know how easy it is for me to just sit and lament Mm -hmm. about everything I could be doing or that I could have done instead of just doing it, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of just putting in the work. And I think that also relates to my writing. My goal is to not write a poem for all of 2019. Because in six years, I will have published three books. And I am excited to re-meet the writer I was before I deep dive so deeply into poetry. Mm. Because I used to write play. I used to just, there were so many other types of writing and Mm. just creative energy, right? I used to dance more. I used to act more. I used to all this stuff. And I feel, I'm I'm glad that I sort of hard-dived into poems for a little while Mm -hmm. and really met myself as a poet and fed that part of my creative spirit. And I'm also excited to like 
set it to the side for a little bit. You know, I have a book coming out next year, and now I can re-meet my other artistic selves. And I've been I've been saying that I was going to do that for so long, right? But it's so easy for me to say, oh, I'm going to write a novel, and then the novel's hard. And so, well, I guess I'll just, just here's another collection. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, totally. Well, yeah. it's hard to break out of the thing mm-hmm. that we know that we can do mm-hmm. really well. It's mm-hmm. like, it's hard to find ways to move out of it. And sometimes I think it takes like someone who knows, permission. yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be like, you know what? I know that you're, you're comfortable here. Like mm-hmm. we can see that you're comfortable here. Mm-hmm. And our guest today, Paul Tran, mm-hmm. um, tells a story about a teacher who did exactly that. Paul Tran's our friend, an incredible poet and historian and scholar and student at the MFA program at the Washington University in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. You might remember Paul's voice yeah. from um, the last episode of season two uh, from our live show. You uh, may remember Paul's looks from Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you may remember Paul's spirit from your dreams. <laughs> Paul is like the Donatella Versace of the Sistina <laughs> or it's like the devil wears sonnets. Uh, <laughs> the devil wears sonnets is so good. And I'm very excited to get into it with the one and only Paul Tran. But first, before we get into this interview, we're going to hear from Paul. Here is Paul Tran reading their phenomenal poem, Taint. Because I'm no different from my mother, I leave the arrow in my heart. What kills me keeps me alive. I forget nothing, forgive nothing. Revenge, no matter how or when, is my only satisfaction. Consider a glass saucer of apple cider vinegar on the table overnight. A fleet of drowned fruit flies in the morning. Consider my father's face snipped from photographs, smothered without protests in a grocery bag. Consider my mother and I cleaning our apartment early each Sunday. My immortal on the radio, animating the dead space between us, nerve-pinching silence within which we attend to our lives, reorganizing this museum of decadent suffering, this performance of union. Consider us scrubbing the musk of sleep from every sheet, sweeping away our footsteps, stretching plastic over the couch, the computer, shining the fancy plates we never used but aspire to, as though our immaculate illusion redeems the filth of being human, our attempts to outlast our fate by forcing evidence of our existence on the world. Consider existence, and underestimated vengeance. This is why, betrayed by her country, by everyone she knows, her only child, hoping to be adopted by a white family, to be a little white girl or boy so spotless that nobody dares to foul it. My mother denies everything afflicting her its brutal power by exterminating like roaches her attachments. Consider... Her obsessive sanitation, not a symptom, but a skill set of expulsion. 
how she disappears, blood from blade. My body splayed like a headless Barbie on the bathroom floor, wrists slashed into mouths, shouting what I couldn't, what I'm told did not happen to me. Consider how she beats me straight with a snakeskin belt, says I'm nothing like my father because I belong to a war woman. And that's love, possession, my mother preparing me for victory, the way our ancestors drilled iron-tipped spikes into the ancient Bakdung River, skewering their southern Han attackers like Titnuel, their blue carcasses pruning in low tides, ending a thousand years of domination, what we call the long eclipse. Paul Tran is a 2018 Ruthily Fellow, a 2017 Discovery Award winner. 2018. And the fir- 2018. My bad, my bad. Let me not ruin your year. Mm-hmm. And um, was the young. first Asian American since 1993 to win the New Grand Slam. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thank Paula. you so much. How are you Thank doing? You so much. It's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, take two. Take two. Fun fact. Um, we had some technical difficulties the first time we had Paula in the studio. And so... Try this thing again. Yeah, that yeah. interview is out in the ether of wherever it is that lost podcast episodes go when they <laughs> die. Wherever, wherever your left sock goes. I'm pretty sure it's the same place. To yeah. podcast heaven. <laughs> yes. yes. Podcast slash sock heaven. Yes. Um, Paula, what is moving you these days? Oh, my God. So I'm in my second to last semester of the MFA program at Washington University in St. Louis. Yes. And one Studying of our, with such legendary luminaries uh, as Carl Phillips and, and Mary, Mary Jo, jo Bang. Bang. <laughs> and part of our final assignment for Carl's class is to create a nonce form. And a what? form? So every poem we write is a nonce form. It's a form that we invent or create. And oh, how... That's what non... It's N-O-N-C-E? Yeah. Then it means an invented form. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. And how nonce forms turn into fixed forms like sonnets or pantoums are that huh. they accrue popularity or oh, their uh, psychological inventiveness or usefulness endure through time, okay. right? I was working on this idea called the Hydra, which is a hybrid between the golden shovel and a sonnet. So it has 13 lines rejecting the conclusiveness of the couplet at the end of a sonnet while still retaining its other properties. But the 13th line also has 13 words, which are then split to be respectively the first word of each line in the next sequence of that same poem. Gotcha. So whereas the sonnet crown, you'll repeat the final line as the first line of the next poem. Uh Here, each of the 13 words are split like different heads of a hydra. So the last line, Mm -hmm. that last line is split up then to be the first word. That last line line. is 13 words. Yes. And And wait, can you just explain for people who might not be familiar with the golden shovel, what the golden shovel is? Oh my goodness. Uh, The golden shovel invites us to take a line from Gwendolyn Brooks' poetry Mm -hmm. and to embed each word of that line as the last word of each line in that poem. And so if you read down typically the right margin of the Mm -hmm. poem, you'll see her quote right there um, as a way of paying homage to her, of invoking her. What I thought was useful for me in this exercise is that typically I make this attempt, which can be useful or not, to figure out where my poems might end up. 
because there's something I want to reach. Mm-hmm. It comes out of a defensiveness or mm-hmm. a kind of need for safety. As you're writing oh, them, yes, you... to know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now I am in this place where I want to push against that. But mm-hmm. part of this Hydra form is that in the very first poem, I already have to make a choice about what that final line of the sequence is going to be right. mm-hmm. and to embed that in the left margin of this first poem. Mm. And then the journey becomes, how do we get there? Mm. And for my, you know, experiment, it was, I see not stars, but their light reaching across the distance between us or something to that effect. Mm. And I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I was in a meeting with Mary Jo and she said this thing. One day, you will be far enough from what's hurt you that you can live again. And I knew in that moment, that's how I'm going to get to that final line. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was something I knew or or believed intrinsically, but to hear someone that I respect so much say that to me mm-hmm. brought me so much assuredness mm-hmm. that, yes, one day I will be far enough, mm-hmm. that it's not the thing that happened that matters entirely to mm-hmm. my life, but the distance now that we have from it, how we have persisted, how we have continued on, and how maybe when I'm far enough from it or when I've embraced it Mm -hmm. finally, Mm -hmm. I can begin another kind of life. Mm. That's really moved me lately. Mm. Maybe I am far enough away from some things, but it's how I've held them close and built a life or what I thought was a life around them. Trauma or around betrayal or around disappointment and regret. But actually, I'm far enough away Mm. and I can live differently now. And I just needed someone to say, You can live differently now, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about um, this form, the Hydra, helping you push back against that defensiveness that you feel yourself Mm -hmm. sometimes approaching the palms. How has form opened you to vulnerability? I thought I knew a thing or two from intuiting what form is, but I certainly didn't realize I didn't know very much. Being in this history of prosody and English seminar with Carl Phillips, Mm -hmm. typically the language around fixed or traditional forms is that they provide a kind of constraint through which language is the vehicle. Mm -hmm. What form has made me meditate on is that they all serve a purpose. And taking that into my work, Denise Levertov writes in her essay on organic form, does my poem extricate through its appearance on the page a kind of meaning? Hmm. Can I look at a poem as a visual art object and already begin to understand its emotional landscape, its psychology. Mm. Just does, by looking at it. Just yeah, by just looking the shape at it. of the poem. Yes, and I tell my students okay. this. Okay. I'm like, does this poem offer you a sense of order, stability, or is it chaotic? Just mm. look at it. Don't even read the words yet. What do you see and sense mm. just by looking at it? It's something that is on my mind. Mm. In writing a poem, I'm asked to make choices. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in my regular day-to-day life, I defer making choices. I let things happen sometimes, or Mm. I pray for things to happen Mm. sometimes. And there's some kind of authority and power that I offer back to myself Mm. by making choices in my work Mm -hmm. so that 
I try to my very best ability to impose or to encourage a kind of interpretation of my work by my reader, Mm -hmm. that I reach them where I need them to meet me Mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I think I read work and it's like, is this the way it is by intention or is this the way it is by accident? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't want anything I do to be an accident because I don't think anything that's happened to me was an accident. Wow. So I, I want to manifest, at least in my creative and intellectual work, that decision-making power that I often don't feel I have the agency mm. in regular day-to-day. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What do you think helps you feel that agency over what is happening in a poem? Like, what are, like, the dynamics or conditions or Mm. things that you've learned to do that have helped you get there or move in that direction? I love that question because it's both what I learned Mm -hmm. and what I had to unlearn. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because, oh my goodness, she may not remember this, but my (laughs) professor, Francine J. Harris, (laughs) on like December 12th at 2.30 in the afternoon at Rise Cafe. Oh my goodness. I reminded her of this incident and she said to me, that never happened. And I was like, Frank, it did. And and because it's so... You call it Frank? Well, she she asked us to. Really? Oh, that's so nice. um, First of all, hashtag believe women. (laughs) Hashtag don't invalidate my experience. Uh uh (laughs) Because it definitely Uh happened. Okay, okay. Um, What happened, girl? (laughs) She she sat me down and she read my uh, final for her class and said, you do this thing where you reach for an ending that you want so desperately to be true. Hmm. But it might not be. And sometimes that knowledge is that you're strong and you're powerful or that you've overcome certain hardships or that you have more empathy for others than you might have or that you understand prismatically something that occurred but you really don't. And she then said, I've thought about why this is. And I wonder if it's because, as a young person growing up, you've always had to have the answers for your family. Mm. As a translator, as a hardworking student, as whatever, you had to plan your life to get out of the circumstances you were born into and did not ask for, or what have you. You had to pave a way. And you are doing that in your poems, and thus not inviting into the world of your art-making surprise. Mm discovery, Hmm. and honesty. Hmm. And she's like, but I get it. It's a defense mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. So how do we make poetry safe for you? But also, how do we challenge you? I have never been read like that (laughs) in my life. Close read. Close close, read. Close read. (laughs) And I couldn't respond I could only carry what she said in my soul. So how has your work responded since then? I think I'm still trying to find a way. Yeah, Mm. of course, of course. That shit is so hard. And I think the last line of my manuscript is, I will find a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I don't know if I found it yet. Mm -hmm. But I think what is true about my life is that no matter what it is I've been up against, I found a way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm afraid to write poems. Because I'm afraid to do the work Frank has asked me to do. Hmm. So I don't have an answer for that yet, but I do know that it's one of the most important priorities Mm -hmm. 
And that has been reiterated by my teachers. Mm-hmm. To find those openings, to find... To open don't myself doubt. up. Yeah. Wonder. To actually yeah. be vulnerable and not pretend vulnerability. To own up to who I am, not who it is I want to be or want the world to see me. Letting myself be human. Yeah. That's not what my mother taught me. Hmm. That's not what I allowed for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still trying to figure out what the conditions are that mm-hmm. I need to do that. And I'm just like, mm, when she finds those conditions. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating that Francine J. Harris said that you need to be safe in your poems. Oh. Yes. Because that makes total sense that that sort of like need to have the answer and that like stake mm-hmm. your claim comes from feeling unsafe yes. in yes. the poem. Of course, as a self, we can't always see ourselves, sure. right? Mm-hmm. And I and I've said, you know, when asked how you come to poetry or what inspired you to do this in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm not talking about third world transition program preorientation when you and Jamila did your poems, Paul and I went to the same undergrad at Brown University, and I was part of, uh, I was one of the people who was, I was a minority leader. Yeah, I was a a minority peer counselor at Brown University, and I read poems. And I knew in that moment, I no longer had to eat my chicken nuggets alone by the B building bathroom as I did in high school, and that every Thursday night at 9 p.m., I could have a circle of friends at which... At one point, Emma Watson was there, and she took two of my G2 pens, and I'm still waiting on Hermione Granger to return (laughs) my G2 pens. And I know that she can because she has a Tom Turner. You know, just tip, tip, you know, and give me back my pens. Um, The pens is gone, girl. Yeah, gone. You know, I'm a child of refugees with a material (laughs) obsession. So (laughs) I will get what is mine. Not in this life. We'll take the the cloak too while you're at it. I like that Yule Ball dress. Let's not forget Mm -hmm. Uh, layers and layers of that satin. And in any case, I... Yes, we've trailed off. (laughs) Came to it, I think, at a critical juncture because I had been assaulted at Brown. Mm -hmm. And there was no one who would believe me the office of the dean gave me two pamphlets, one for psych services, another for time management. And so the poem was the place where I asked to be safe. Mm. But then safety became this concept that wasn't actually promoting my own growth after mm. a while, you know? I distorted it into something else that mm. is now, is it what, four years later? Um, four or five years later, I need it to change. And maybe it goes back to what Mary Jo said. Maybe I am far enough from what happened Mm -hmm. that I can change, that my life can change. And I know my work demands it. Mm -hmm. But what that means is I have responsibility to myself. Mm. Because if I keep on deluding myself with poems that aren't rigorous or thoughtful or honest, I'm going to turn into or concretize being a person who isn't honest. Hmm. And I can't accept that for myself. Hmm. I think what I hear in that is just, you know, how do we remember danger without re-endangering oh, the body yeah. and the spirit? Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering what tools in poetry or tools in your own life, you mm-hmm. know, what things are you reaching towards um, that are allowing you to not reanimate violence but remember and possibly reconfigure it on my notepad on my phone 
I have this little mantra, re-examine, not relive. Mm-hmm. Relieve, not relive. That mm-hmm. sometimes maybe I thought I was relieving myself of pain when mm-hmm. I was actually just reliving mm-hmm. it. Wow. But I, I'm still figuring that out. Mm-hmm. But one thing I am exploring at present is an impulsive behavior towards danger. And in my own life, I've manifested that right in risky sexual encounters and abuse of, you know, this and that. And why in my poems have I shied away from the danger of knowledge? Hmm. Why in my poems have I shied away from the danger of holding a mirror accurately up to myself? Wait, really? Do you you feel that you've shied away from holding a I think I try my best. I feel like your poems are so bravely confronting I think the I reality of violence. I feel like I'm at this impasse where I realize as much work as I've done, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's this bottomlessness underneath hmm. that I have barely begun to scratch at. A bottomlessness it, of, what, of what? It's like there's actually more to what I've explored than I've been able to or allowed myself to. Hmm. And, and that's that falsehood and reaching for that knowing where actually... There's something behind There's it. There's something behind that knowing. So stop trying to have a finality of knowing. Oh, I see. Yeah. So like that conclusiveness at the end of the poem or that like... Triumphant. N- yeah, interior. knowledge, yeah. thesis statement is actually blocking you from what is beyond it. Yeah, yes. I also think a lot of oh, my poems wow. are kind of external in a way. Like they look at the world and they'll tell you what uh-huh, I saw in the world uh-huh, or what uh-huh. had been done to me. Yeah. But if I really track my interiority through the poems, yeah, I have just begun that is so and i didn't realize that for a long time i thought oh by discerning someone else my abuser my father Mm -hmm. my mother that i was somehow also implicated Mm -hmm. but i don't think i have truly looked at myself Mm -hmm. in my poems because Mm -hmm. where does my compulsivity come from Mm -hmm. where does my even just the fascination the lingering fascination about violence Mm -hmm. what a body can do to another body, what a body can withstand until it can't. Like, where does that come from? Hmm. I've been witnessing that in others, but I'm now just beginning, I think, to look at myself hmm. with that same scrutiny yeah. and not letting myself off the hook. Mm-hmm. And so it's exciting, but it's scary. And I think it feels like a need. But it's a hard act because you're asking yourself to make your body no longer the object, but also an actor mm-hmm. within the work. And yes. that is that role switch of the world not happening to you, but you also being part of the verb that is happening to yes. you is, yeah. is really intense. Yes. Or well, when, or even when like you become the object of study and not the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like you become implicated in some ways. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I don't I know. I often wonder if my interest in history has been a way to not look at the present. You know? Mm. I have rationalized to myself and, you know, written it into, you know, my application for grad school and for Mm -hmm. this and that, how important the work of history is. But I forgot a whole other component Mm -hmm. to it, which is that I need it to understand the now Mm -hmm. and to also have a sense of what's coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You studied history at Brown. Yes, I was a history major. There's this assumption in the MFA program, we all might have done English or creative writing, and mm-hmm. that's just not where I came from. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think reading your poems to know that you're a history major, it makes total sense. I did. Well, yes, with the habits and, yeah. and the obsessions. Yeah. I didn't know that's where I would have ended up at the beginning because 
first of all, no one in my community really graduates high school or go to college. Mm -hmm. I was lucky to go to a 6th to 12th grade charter school that was founded in the aftermath of the University of California, Berkeley v. Bake. Mm -hmm. And the regents of the University of California wanted to find an alternative to affirmative action by race to bring in minority students Mm -hmm. into higher education. Mm -hmm. And so they thought, why don't we set up this experiment of creating a school entirely for students who come from low-income families and are qualified for free and reduced lunch Mm -hmm. and whose families have never gone to college before, that they would be the first generation. Mm -hmm. Being at that school gave me a possibility Mm -hmm. to do what few in my neighborhood had been able to do. Mm -hmm. And part of what fueled me through that time was my mom had come to the United States in 1989 and... She was a refugee from Vietnam. She had spent years imprisoned by the new regime and years at a re-education camp in the Philippines where she learned English Mm. and lived on rations and waited for a sponsor. And I didn't know, really, those parts of her life. Mm. Mm. I didn't know very much, if anything at all, about her childhood. Mm. I knew my grandfather was a carpenter, that my grandmother had a noodle cart, but I had no idea what my mother's life was. Mm. Mm. And in part because I took for granted the opportunities to ask, but also because some part of me discerned that she wasn't willing to talk about it. Mm. Totally. And, and that's, si- that's a silence that is in, like, particularly in a survival that's framed by migration. Yes. And mm. escape. Yes. Yeah. She locked and compartmentalized that part of herself. Mm-hmm. But also, why would a adult woman, a mother, talk to her child about mm-hmm. those things? Right, exactly. Like, what could I offer her? You yeah. know, I look back on it now as this learned adult. I'm like, oh, you could talk to me about anything. But at four years old, what could I offer her? Right, right, you know? right, right. And what would you do with that now? What, right, what, right. what could I have done? How would I have made sense of it? Yeah. And I think when I finally came to the consciousness that I was fascinated about her life, because I needed reasons for why our family was the way it was, for why we treated each other the way we did, for so many whys Hmm. that I wanted to unbury that part of my history Hmm. that Hmm. only my mother knew. And I actually then realized I didn't know very much about the Vietnam War Mm. or the American intervention in that war. And so that's what led you into history as Mm -hmm. a place to look for answers, I see. To look for answers. And I became frustrated with how Mm. Vietnamese people, like my mother, never had the chance to tell their side of the story. That it was state actors and military actors... Hollywood actors and directors, Uh they all told the story, Mm -hmm. right? It's Apocalypse Now. It's Tim O'Brien, the things they carried, Mm -hmm. right? It's never the ones who were resettled in the United States Mm -hmm. unless they could offer up a story of gratitude, Mm -hmm. of good citizenship, Mm -hmm. of bolstering democracy and Mm -hmm. capitalism against the communist enemy. Mm -hmm. This country, I sense, did not want to hear from myself or my mother. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to learn about our past so I can tell about our present. Mm -hmm. And I think only now am I getting to the present part. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. There's an infinite past Mm -hmm. 
it's changing. But, you know, and anytime my mom did tell me stories, those stories changed. Mm. Her her delivery of them changed. The for details sure. in those changed. For sure. And to, at points, I was like, wait, am I lying to you about what you've told me? Because I swore I heard it this way. Mm. All of that builds into my interest in history. For sure. And I come to poetry because I want to write the primary source documents for my mother and I. I know you're very into Miss Toni Morrison. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And I know one of the things that sort of has been tendulating you lately was her lecture on goodness. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to know a couple things. Stars. One, what do you think about that lecture? And two, do you feel like your work is attempt to move away or towards goodness? Oh, towards. 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 Hmm. Show your work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. I, I, would, I would be so happy to try to show this work um, back up your claims oh i will back it up <laughs> promise you and drop it i first want to say that i did not know the word for rape or family incest until i was 17 and read tony morrison's the bluest eye <laughs> and in the scene between Pecola and charlie breedlove her father did i find language for what my father did to me when I was young, before he left. And so I owe her for putting a book like that into the world Mm. that could help kids like me understand a little bit about what happened to us, Mm -hmm. how we internalize a kind of self-loathing and how that internalization shapes every corner of our life. Mm. But there is this wonderful lecture she gives Um, at the Harvard Divinity School. I think it's called the Ingersoll Lecture on altruism and the literary imagination. And in it, she talks about how at the turn of the century, the protagonist still triumphed at the end. Mm -hmm. Goodness won, Mm -hmm. you know, happy endings for all. But as soon as we move through the world wars, and I feel like what she said or implicates is that Western civilization saw what it did to itself? Mm. Did people become interested in the truth about human nature? Mm -hmm. That we were capable of such violence Mm -hmm. to each other? Or that, no, let me rephrase that, that they, the West, was capable of that violence Mm -hmm. because it was enacted on people that they thought were in their community, Mm -hmm. right? There became this move to show the evilness in human nature, Mm. to show the psychology and wit and cleverness and glamour of evil. Stories became more complex, more open-ended, ambiguous, and goodness fell into the background. Mm. Goodness became this laughingstock, Mm. right? Goodness was racialized, gendered, disabled. Mm. It was there for a moment, to maybe give the protagonist some wisdom to use on their hero's Mm -hmm. journey. And then it was gone. It was Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. right? Always in the back. Never allowed to really be seen or heard, Mm -hmm. but always plucked for a moment to do something Mm -hmm. and then thrown away. And what she says is that though her novels deal with events of great extremity, 
goodness has always been her focus, mm. to make goodness the center of attention and to redefine, to complicate goodness because it's not just the happy ending. It's not just the character we want to win winning. Mm-hmm. Goodness is the acquisition of knowledge that a character did not have before, but is now necessary for them to move forward. Ooh. And in the 1993 interview with Charlie Rose, she says that for many of her books, who the beloved is and how we love the beloved was the vector through which she examined goodness. Mm-hmm. I just have been thinking about that because in so much of my work and in so much of how I've described my work is that I'm curious about violence, how it takes place, how we rationalize it, how we deal with it, and how we use it to build a life, to Mm -hmm. rebuild a fractured self. But I found now that that feels insufficient Mm. because that focus, though important, still centers at its heart the evilness yeah. of what I've witnessed huh. or experienced. Mm. That and question of like, why violence? Yes, violence how violence? Yes, violence. It's so all it's, about it's, violence. It's, it's it still finds en- violence to be the most titillating it's thing. The, right. it's, it's the vehicle. It's the mm-hmm. engine. Mm-hmm. And I had to engineer something else. Hmm. I'm curious now about what survival really looks like. Mm. What endurance, persistence, the decision to get up every day, to do what one must do, What does the decision to live really look like? And not just to, you know, recite received ideas about survival, again, as I've done in the past about it needing to be triumphant, that Mm -hmm. it needs to be about overcoming Mm -hmm. or any sort of immigrant narrative of survival, right? Hardworking, those stereotypes, that it's something else, Mm -hmm. that violence can still be flawed, that violence can still Sorry, did I say violence? That survives. See how easy that yeah, is. Yeah. How easy Woo! to just slip. That's slip, wild, right? actually. Yeah. It's, it's, I have to unlearn it every mm-hmm. time. Oh my, I feel embarrassed, but it's like, I'm still training my mind yeah. mm-hmm. not to center evil. Mm-hmm. And so in my poems, I want to explore that how one retrains the mind, how one focuses on goodness. Because when I stop and take stock of what is good in my life, and I'm reaching out to you now <laughs> in the studio holding your hands with my hands. Oh, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> indulging me. But literally, when I stop to take stock of this, mm-hmm. there's so much. Mm-hmm. And how could I ever have a sense of writer's block or not having material when you're all in my life, mm-hmm. you know, when when your love is here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's been on my mind. Word. I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of survival because I think... Yeah. A lot of times when we think about the poetics of violence, um, when we think about the poetics of mining our traumas and stuff like that, we often come back to this sometimes revelatory, sometimes cheap idea of healing. Mm. How is healing different from survival to you? I think healing is part of survival. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we choose to heal in order to survive. Mm. Sometimes we choose not to, and Mm. we call that surviving. You know, what I described about what Frank said to me, Mm -hmm. that's part of my healing. You know, Mary Jo or Carl have said to me in class, that's part of my healing. Mm. And maybe I couldn't hear it from other people who've said it before. And I know I've had people in my life who've said it to me before. Mm -hmm. But I could not listen at the time. Mm. Too busy doing what I thought was survival or or Mm. too busy being self-righteous about my survival. Like, Mm. ah, this is it. This is capital S. You are. 
R V I V A. Yeah, that's how you spell it. And rather than actually healing, and I have to ask myself: Do I accept the wound that made me? Do I actually let my body regenerate? In the poem I read, Taint, it opens up with a concept of healing, which is that I keep the arrow in my heart. Taking the arrow out could mean I bleed out. But I'm going to live with it in, mm-hmm. mm. and not as decoration, not as a symbol, or as a commodity, or as currency of what I've been through, but for something else. Mm. And I won't pretend like I know what that something else is mm. at this moment. Yeah. But that's that's what I'm hopefully walking towards. When you talk about this need to know or the need to have the answer particularly at the end of the poem. Mm-hmm. Like, how much of that is because you come out of slam? You know, for a long time, and even in class yesterday, I was like, oh, because I come out of a slam, this mm-hmm. is something that I do. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if that knee-jerk reaction or that, you know, that impulse is a way to defer or transfer the responsibility onto the genre. Mm. Because I don't think that's what slam needs. Mm. Um or that is required from slam of its participants to win. Mm-hmm. But often that, it like, does. That like thesis statement. Oh, often it does. And often when I've taught, yeah. I've taught that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I still do. I still think I have to earn everything in my life. But definitely in the slam, no one really wakes up saying like, I really need a queer trans Asian American story today. <laughs> and so. I, I wake up with that every day. <laughs> Bitch, you queer sure. Asian. I know. <laughs> it's true. But most people it's like, don't. I need and me. <laughs> I, even I never really said you know, that to like myself. You know, like the audience in Phoenix, Arizona at iWhips is not necessarily what Sure, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. You know? sure. Um, and I thought I had to earn from them their respect and mm. earn from them their attention. And so, you know, I did things in my poems. I performed and I, I built a performance style, a writing style that would try to earn that. How do you tell someone what you deserve in life? Slam is just this exercise for telling people what you deserve in life. Hmm. For a long time, to answer the any question, I thought that ending, which Carl calls my wind-up ending, mm-hmm. um, was what I needed to announce what I deserve. But now I think I deserve other things. Hmm. And so my poems have to reflect that. What do you deserve? Oh, God. I deserve my body back, but not in the way that I thought having it back would look like before. Hmm. I deserve to treat my body well. Hmm. Hmm. The demands have all turned in the inward, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, in Beloved, Setha is told, you are your best thing. I deserve to be my best thing. Oh. Um, and if there's no one else, I will rearrange all the pieces and give it back to myself in the way that I need. Okay, so we've reached that point in the show. Ding, ding, ding-a-ling. Um, <laughs> where we're going to put um, two things in a fight. Mm-hmm. And you tell us who would be the big doll. Okay. All right. So we have in this corner, the bluest eye. <sighs> and in that corner, the one and only, Beloved. <laughs> who wins in a fight, girl? Beloved. Beloved. Yeah. Beloved wins in a fight. Yeah, she came back from the dead. <laughs> That's actually true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like bless Bacola and them, but Wait, but you but you said that the bluest eye was the top Tony Morrison 
book. So why does Beloved win? Yeah. Don't tell the bluest eye. I'm telling. But don't tell the bluest eye. But is it because of the character or because of the power, the strength of the book? Strength of the book. Mm. Mm -hmm. The bluest eye launched me into Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. that Beloved has continued to help me explore. Uh, For sure. mm -hmm. That Mm. makes sense. Paul, before we get out of here, would you mind reading us another poem? Yes. This one is called Like Judith slaying Holofernes and it's after the painting Judas slaying Holofernes by Artemisia Gentileschi who in the 1600s was a broke artist Hmm. that was also one of the only women of her time known to testify against her rapists in open court Hmm. and win Hmm. so like Judith slaying Holofernes I know better than to leave the house Without my good dress, my good knife, like Excalibur, between my stone breasts, mother would have me whipped for that, would have me kneeling on rice until I shrilled so loud I made the church bells ring. Didn't I tell you she'd remind me? That elegance is our revenge. That there are neither victims nor victors, but the bitch we envy in the end. I am that bitch. I am dogged. I am so damned. Not even death wanted me. He sent me back after you sacked my body. The way your army sacked my village. Stacked our headless idols in the river where our children impaled themselves on rocks. I exit night. I enter your tent, gilded in a bolt of stubborn sunlight, my sleeves already rolled up. I know what they'll say, slut, for showing this much skin, this irreverence for what is seen when I ask to be seen, so look at me. My thigh lifts from your thigh, My mouth spits poison into your mouth. You nasty beauty. I'm no beast, but my maid keeping your blood off me and my good dress will be a song the parish sings for centuries. Tell Mary. Tell Eve. Tell Salome and David about me. Watch their faces like yours turn green. Girl, every time we talk to Paul, I feel like I leave so full, so clean, and so prepared for what's coming next. I feel like the ancestors are dancing in my veins. (laughs) (laughs) And talking a little bit of shit, but mostly dancing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I think we should make a Paul Tran pledge right now. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. Paul is like trying to leave some things behind, right? Mm -hmm. What are we going to leave behind, Franny? In 2018. In 2018. Moving on with our lives. That... That awful and or wonderful year that we just left. (laughs) A lot of fears. Hmm. There's a lot of fears that like of myself and of my own abilities um, and fears of like becoming close to people that I care about Mm -hmm. who might be people that I might not remain close to forever. And Mm -hmm. so I think that makes me, you know, I'm like in a new city, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And it makes me afraid to like become close to people but 
fuck that. I want to leave that fear behind in 2018 and, and like have meaningful relationships with mm-hmm. the people around yeah, me. Yeah, have big love, even yeah. if it's brief. Yeah, exactly. Amen. What about you? I am going to leave behind pettiness. You know, mainly this is about like the internet, but also in my interpersonal reactions and maybe even in the group chat, which mm-hmm. hope, thank God mm-hmm. nobody ever sees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so... <laughs> sometimes unnecessarily petty for the sake of clout or wit or just whatever um, towards people that I claim to be in community with. And so I'm trying to be kinder to other writers, kinder to black people, kinder to other queer people, just kinder to the people that I claim to be in community with. And hopefully that's a first step in expanding that kindness to a greater Mm -hmm. population outside of that. But yeah, just... To all living beings. Yeah. And if I am mean, I want it to be purposeful. Mm -hmm. You know, not flung at people that I should and do love. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that when you're petty in the group chat, I can call you out on it? Uh, you just don't like it, and that will give my ego <gasps> enough of a... <laughs> wow, just yeah. ignore her and yeah. she'll go away. Ig- ignore her and she will fester. In it. <laughs> she'll just go back to sleep. She'll just yes. go back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it's too much, they'll just be like, Denez, remember what you said? Okay, I will do that. Okay. Maybe I'll have a remember what you said gif Ooh. to send you. <laughs> okay, pinky swear, pinky okay. swear. Mm. I think um, we're going a little bit, um, <laughs> a yeah. little bit. So maybe we should just go ahead and get on out of here. Yes. Um, who are you thankful for? Who are you thanking at the end of this episode, Denise Smith? I am thankful to Al Gore for the internet. I'm sorry that I've been wilding on your internet. <laughs> on your internet. That's Al Gore's internet, baby. But I promise I'm going to use your internet to greater use. And also, you should have won. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to thank Jabuki Young White for perfecting the internet. Yes, Jabuki. Yes. Al walked so Jabuki could run. <laughs> <laughs> Into my arms. Jabuki, if you're out there, I think we're both bottoms, but I will switch it up, baby. Oh. <laughs> I feel like he has a little cute butt. We also want to thank the Poetry Foundation, especially Idalmi Noriega. We want to thank Post Loudness. Um, thank you to our producer, Daniel Kisslinger. Hi, Daniel. Uh, um, and thank you to you, the listeners, for continuing to make this all possible. Mm-hmm. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at VS The Podcast. Uh, if you listen to this on iTunes, please, please, please comment and rate and continue to share with your friends. Uh, let us know what you think. And you can follow our guest Paul Tran at Speak Deadly on both Twitter and Instagram the Instagram is popping the Twitter is popping just do it all and with that that's it I think that's it alright well we'll see y'all in your ears later <laughs> can't wait to be inside your ears mm-hmm. mm, that's a sex a little dirty bye <laughs>